we, we are here with Free Food for Thought today. My name is Melanie. My name is Joe Noss. And uh, Free Food for Thought is a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. Today, we're so excited to be here with Ambassador Samantha Power, uh, the former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations for President Obama, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, war correspondent, and the Anna Lind Professor of Practice at Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Law School. Her book, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2003, and her most recent memoir, called The Education of an Idealist, was published just this month. Thank you for being here with us today, Ambassador Power. It's great to be here. So we like to open our podcast um, asking our guests about inflection points or moments where they made life-changing decisions. And although your life and career have definitely taken many turns, we wanted to ask um, if you could point to a single pivotal moment that really shaped where you are today. Um, well, the probably the, the foundational moment for me was um, when I was growing up and I, I came to America as an immigrant, I became very interested in sports and I wanted to do what you're doing, but to have it be about sports. And so when I was in college, I was part of a, a rotating group of students who just sounded off on various developments in the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball, and um, but the summer after my freshman year, I went and I interned at the CBS affiliate in Atlanta in the sports department. And so one major moment for me was as I was taking notes on a baseball game in order to help cut the evening news highlights, I saw the images um, coming from Tiananmen Square where young students, college students really mainly had risen up to demand their freedom. And when the tanks came in, it was just the moment I happened to be in the, in the editing booth. Um, uh, the tanks came in and they just mowed over these students and it was just a kind of visceral revulsion I had toward what was happening but also real confusion about what I was doing and with in wanting to just do sports all the time and play sports and watch sports and talk about sports and I thought you know I should probably try to dig in a little more to what's going on around me in the world uh, so that was a major epiphany and then the other one was later in life, I had written this book that you mentioned in the introduction generously um, on American responses to the major genocides of the 20th century. And I, amazingly, the first term senator from Illinois with a funny name, uh, Barack Obama, reached out to me and um, asked if he could meet me to talk about what was in the book and to talk about ideas about how we could do American foreign policy differently. And so that ended up being a gateway into actually being in the halls of power in some fashion. Um, and you know, prior to that, I'd just been a writer and had been documenting what was happening, but for the first time I had a chance to work closely with somebody who's trying to shape events. Mm -hmm. So I guess sort of to follow up on that, having worked in journalism, academia, and then directly for government, uh, when did you feel you sort of had the most autonomy to sort of express your opinions and really sort of act on them or put them into practice? I mean, I guess the conventional answer is, of course, when you're outside government, you can express yourself. I mean, I was a columnist at Time Magazine. I wrote for The New Yorker and wrote my books. And But the truth is that when I was in government, and this is a tribute more to President Obama than anything to do with me, but I never pulled punches in a meeting or um, in my debates with him. I mean, if anything, he would get confused if I was reticent. He'd be like, what's wrong? Do you have a cold? You know, um, Where's your voice? And he would really push me um, to just speak freely. And and so my worldview changed insofar as I wasn't out in the field as much. It's just different being a government official. You're a little more insulated. You're dangerously insulated in some cases. 
but um, I definitely never felt like I was muzzled. But then internally, when I didn't get my way and the president went in a different direction or, or the policy turned out differently, then it wasn't like I could go out and say to the press, hey, here's what I would have done. you know. And so in that sense, that's just a compromise you have to make. You're part of a team. You serve at the pleasure of the president. Um, and his word is final. And even if you, in your heart, you know, think it you sh should have been done differently, you're out there, you're defending what the United States is doing. And so, it, you know, that was an adjustment. But on balance, because we actually really weren't at odds very often, and I don't know any president in my lifetime I can say that about where I was just so aligned, I didn't feel I had to do that very often. So I, I, I really felt quite free to be myself in government. So I guess somewhat building on that, disagreeing with the president as a cabinet official is obviously a hard thing to do. Many cabinet officials today, when that happens, they have to leave government. So I guess- um, <laughs> It's a with, different system. Yeah, with yeah. that being said, uh, could you speak about a time where you sort of disagreed with President Obama on foreign policy, um, and how did you express this disagreement, and what was the eventual outcome? Well, one of the stories I tell in uh, The Education of an Idealist is um, on something that might be of interest in California, which is, uh, you know, at that time, a hundred what was a hundred years ago, a little less than a hundred years ago, um, a, a genocide was carried out by the Ottoman Empire against the Armenians. Mm -hmm. I had written this book on genocide. I had vouched for the fact that President Obama would recognize the genocide. It should be very obvious um, that we recognize everybody knows it happened. It's true. It's established. It's not contested by historians. But the Turkish government is very influential. We had troops in Iraq. And of course, when President Obama went from being candidate Obama to sitting in the Oval and trying to get our troops out, uh, that became a much harder decision for him. But I still urged him to recognize, even though I also was internalizing, of course, um, the st larger strategic context, um, because I just think in general, you're better off ripping the Band-Aid off and not saying things that aren't true and, and forcing our diplomats to contort and to say, oh, terrible things happened in 1915 when it was a genocide, uh, that's just not good for anyone. And and building a relationship with Turkey built on a lie is not good for anyone. So I expressed it by saying just that, exactly what I'm saying to you. Um, and I found it very frustrating because I felt like um, other advisors had made a different argument. I didn't mind, I mean, I, I wanted to you know, succeed in convincing him, um, but I understood if he was gonna make a different decision, but he was making the decision I thought predicated on misinformation and that was i found much more frustrating than losing an argument is losing when there's a faulty sort of predicate and so that made me crazy and i was incredibly frustrated and and so we had a a, a really difficult conversation and at that time i was eight months pregnant uh with who would become my son the little person inside me who was going to become my son but eight months not nine months and sure enough i was so frustrated by this conversation it was just me and him I ran into him outside. He was trying to use the men's room, and I kind of <laughs> cornered him, and we had this argument, and um, it, I found it so stressful to disagree in that way, again, with this this predicate that seems to me so forced and false that it really, you know, I took it I took it hard, and such, so hard that when I got back to my office, my water had broken. So I actually gave birth to my son on Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day. Mm -hmm. um, he was born a month early, probably, because of the, the heat of that. Um, contretemps or whatever with the President of the United States. Hmm. And so to, to touch a little bit more on, on your time as ambassador and working in foreign policy, um, in reviewing your book, Thomas Friedman said in the Times that um, you have a certain tilt um, 
toward using American power to defend the defenseless, but that, quote, when she loses the argument to do so in one country, she doesn't resign. She looks for somewhere else to fix. If you do think that that's an accurate depiction of your philosophy, could you talk about kind of where that ability to pivot developed over time? And if there was a conscious moment that you started to think about what it means to leave one crisis behind and start focusing your attention on another? Yeah. Um, well, let me say that the, the book I've written, I really wrote with young people in mind. And so I try to bring people into these dramas in a way where even if you're not interested in foreign policy, you could identify with not being able to get what you want or not being able to help someone that you want to help. And then trying to figure out, do you stay and continue to work on it? Or do you bang your head against the wall? Or do you, as you say, try to pivot? Um, I certainly never abandoned um, uh, human rights causes where I wasn't moving the ball, as it were, you know, in, in uh, policy discussions. Um, it was more a question of, okay, at the same time, I continue to um, try to advocate on behalf of the Syrians, for example, or bringing Syrian refugees into this country. Um, I could also advocate on behalf of women political prisoners. There are so many of them around the world, and and in a way, it's harder for government um, to defend locking up female political prisoners often than it is just their general repression. And it was like a sort of niche, I thought, uh, like a wedge issue that we could really use to pressure governments. So that's one example. But even on Syria, as you know, the larger conflict went on. You know, I sat down with the Rush, my Russian counterpart and figured out how to negotiate a resolution so that humanitarian aid could reach people in opposition territory, um, uh, abutting Turkey, and you know, a million people or more were were reached with food that would otherwise not have been reached. Now, again, that was occurring at the same time I was completely failing to get Russia to help me get food to people who were in encircled areas within Syria. So you could say, well, sh you know, since you're not getting it all why not, um, you know, go back and be a professor or do something else. But um, within Syria, there was, if you could help one person on a given day using the, the tools of American power, that seemed worth doing. So in that uh, sort of comment, you had mentioned sort of crafting a resolution with your Russian counterpart within the United Nations. And as a big mod United Nations nerd, um, I sort of, this question has been haunting me. Many people as critics of the United Nations these days describe it as like the archetypical, ineffective international institution. And so I guess, could you speak a little bit about your experiences there, whether you agree with that characterization or sort of where the UN is still able to succeed or fail and sort of about your time there? Well, first, just to distinguish a couple of different parts of the UN. I mean, the the humanitarian agencies in the UN are vaccinating kids, educating girls, feeding people. You know, now there's 70 million people displaced in the world offering humanitarian support. But the UN is also a building, and it's a place where the powerful countries of the world come together and they bring their issues, they bring their, their politics, they bring their priorities, um, they bring their stubbornness. Um, and, you know, what's happened you know, initially after the Cold War, Russia and the United States were freed finally to make the UN work on behalf of people who were being persecuted, to make the Security Council almost like an executive branch of the UN. So the humanitarians are doing their thing. That's not going to change. That's a question of money and resources. That's its own issue. But by and large, they're just helping millions of people. Could be more efficient, of course, but, you know, they do God's work. Um, but the this quasi-executive branch, the Security Council, really did start to be able to do things to authorize 
the the UN um, to be impactful on issues of war and peace. But with Putin's takeover in Russia, with China becoming more assertive and President Xi certainly becoming dictator for life, with Donald Trump's um, retreat really from U.S. leadership and and kind of weird relationship with dictatorial regimes, you know, we're now in a situation where that executive branch that the Security Council is, three of its most influential players are either hostile to the status quo, which is Russia, retreating from catalyzing international action, which is the United States, or if you're China, kind of licking your chops and saying, hey, I can make the UN much less interested in human rights at a time when the US isn't even really fighting that hard and, and isn't fighting on behalf of human rights. And so that's gonna make the UN less functional, but I think it's a little bit of a mistake to come at it from how's the organization doing? Cause it's really much more about the countries that comprise the organization. And so now that you've kind of had a few years of distance from your work at the UN, although I'm sure it took a few years just to write the book that, that just came out this month, could you speak a bit about what it was that made you decide this was the time to reflect on on your career thus far and, and why you chose to do that as a mem- memoir rather than maybe another scholarly novel? Yeah, um, I, I, it was a big choice uh, to do something personal. We, we like to say in my family that we Irish struggle to even use the first person in therapy. Um, <laughs> so it was a big adjustment to even think about saying I. And in government, by definition, there really other unless you're the president of the United States, there's really no I. It's all we. You know, that anytime I'm making, you know, confronting the Russians in the Security Council or negotiating a resolution, it's with these foreign servants and civil servants behind me having my back, making me look smarter than I am. Um so it felt a little presumptuous, a little, you know, dicey to be writing a memoir. I also think, you know, even though I'm old by your standards, I'm on the younger side to be reflecting on my career. Mm-hmm. I thought like it's a little, uh, you know, surely you have to broker Middle East peace before you get to write a memoir. <laughs> but the reason I did it is, again, to come back to the the whole point of my book is for young people. And and if I just tell the story of these policy debates and when I won and I lost and what we did or didn't do for human rights or how the U.S. can lead or can't lead, you know, it's going to limit who's going to read this book. And I want college students to read this book. I want college students to be able to identify with the young me, the actually young me, um, where I first have that realization that I want to help, but I'm filled with doubt about whether I can, you know, or when I go into journalism and I feel like maybe I'm making a difference because I'm telling the story of people who are being persecuted, but then I also feel kind of creepy because I'm asking people to tell stories about the deaths of their loved ones. And, um, and so those doubts and just the, the, the kind of gritty confusion that every young person experiences as they try to figure out what their place in the world is. Um, I wanted to open all of that up. So I didn't just write a memoir and didn't just overcome my inhibition by using the first person, but I wrote, um, a much, much, much more personal and kind of vulnerable memoir than I think um, you know is typically done. I certainly haven't seen a government memoir or anything that that that, that takes that that tack. And the most satisfying dimension of its publication, it only came out a week ago. In fact, um, is just seeing teenage girls, even who are reading, college students, graduate students. Um, and people who are just saying, oh, I didn't think I would have, ha- I would never would have thought I had anything in common with a member of the president's cabinet, but wow, I have a lot in common with this person, you know, who's <laughs> all confused. Um, and so that at least 
preliminarily means I think that it's it's uh, doing what I'd hoped, and and I say that because the number one predictor of whether we're going to be able to take our country back and whether America can lead in a constructive way in the world is not some theoretical question about what our doctrine should be, but whether good people go into our institutions. And so I want to use the book to try to activate people, make them realize they have a place in that. So uh, just to change gears a tiny bit, um, I'm sorry that we're going to get a tiny bit political. I hope that's okay that's with fine. you. Um, so currently in the Democratic Party, the big debate, I think, could be simplified into whether politicians should sort of pursue idealistic goals or instead pursue incrementalism to a certain extent. And your book, A Problem from Hell, uh, sort of concludes with an anecdote about the unreasonable man um, is the person that will eventually make the world a better pay place, somewhat of an endorsement sort of, of idealism. So I guess, can you speak a little bit about how you personally balance these two principles um, and how you think they should inform the political debate in the Democratic Party today? Yeah, I mean, my, my book, The Education of an Idealist, is very much centered in that question of, of how you balance transformational goals with um, political, moral, um, constituency constraints. Um, and, you know, I guess I my goal remains just as it was when I was younger, um, you know, uh, that we respect the human rights of our citizens in the first instance, and that our foreign policy reflect our our most cherished values. Um, that's my goal. That the 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 distance from where we are now with Donald Trump as president and the policies at home and internationally, and my goal is very very large. But I don't think that there's a universe in which tomorrow. The, the change that I seek can be achieved. The, the, the way the change that I seek will be achieved will be incremental. Mm -hmm. So the goal is, in effect, transformational um, uh, and about the elevation of human dignity, individual dignity, but the means inevitably to me are a set of small steps. And, and I see, you know, with my students on campus, uh, students your age and, and graduate students as well, we're in a kind of, people are so frustrated with inequality and with immigration policies and, and, and abuses and that we're in a kind of and racial injustice, Lord knows, we're, we're in sort of a revolutionary moment. And I'm all for that spirit. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the proposals put forth by, let's say, the candidates that are on the more progressive side of the spectrum or on the, the further left on the spectrum, I mean, they're thrilling on one level. I mean, they would, if, if achieved the advances they would bring about for for our people are just, I mean, breathtaking. But the fact of the matter is when hopefully a Democrat, from my standpoint, hopefully when a Democrat wins the presidency, let's say in 2020, takes over in January 2021, the Senate is going to be at best 50-50 Democrat-Republican. Um, you know, the House will be at best Democratic control, but not by an overwhelming majority. If I had to guess, the courts will have been stacked mm -hmm. by the prior administration. You know, so so if you set yourself up to think that the change that you're going to achieve is 24 hour change or instant sweeping change, then you end up in a bit of a doom loop because you just you can feel as a young person like, well, damn, like this wasn't what I thought we were going to do some <laughs> big thing. And then we got this little small thing. And part of my the message of my book is I'm more idealistic today than I was even when I started out, but I'm also I, I you know got to keep resilience for the for the fight and for how long it can take, um, you know, to see reform or to bring about reform and and 
to, to avoid that disillusionment, it's good to kind of steel yourself for the importance of, of kind of shrinking the change and, and um, you know, aggregating changes together in order to bring about the, the bigger change that you seek. And so I guess to, we're running out of time here, so I'm going to ask one brief question and you can answer it with a prompt no. Uh, so in the 2018 midterm election, many Obama era State Department officials ran for Congress and won. Um, what do you think about this and would you ever consider running for office yourself? I was thrilled by that. I mean, actually a very, very close friend of mine who was President Obama's human rights advisor basically from the State Department. He's named Tom Malinowski, a Polish immigrant. I'm an Irish immigrant. Just a great friend of mine. He'd worked for Human Rights Watch for years before he came into the Obama administration. And, you know, when he saw Trump win, it's like, well, I can tweet or I can run. Um, and he went back to where he'd gone to high school. And, I mean, he really was, I'm just using him as one example, but there, there are dozens of these examples. But he was just, you know, he had to find his way around. I mean, that's where he'd grown up. So he knew the neighborhood, but, I mean, he didn't know the local political figures. You know, his messaging was like really a work in progress. <laughs> you know, he was, I was like, oh man, Tom, like I could be better than this. Um, and then he just learned and he grew and he listened. It was amazing to watch him listen to his constituents. And then he ended up getting the sort of winning the Democratic primary and then taking on a, um, a Republican incumbent who'd been in the job for, for 10 years and hadn't been Democrat in 10 years. And my friend won and he's now a freshman member of Congress and he's both, he's bringing this human rights perspective that he learned, you know, in, the, in part in the executive branch, in part in the real world, and he's applying it domestically and internationally. He's just doing a, a tremendous job. Um, but he's up for re-election if anybody wants to go help him win, <laughs> win re-election. Tom Malinowski, New Jersey. I think New Jersey's seventh uh, district is where he's from. But I love that idea of just, you know, being almost agnostic about how you can serve and just finding your place. And at the time that the executive branch became off limits to someone who cared about human rights because it was a different approach that Trump was pursuing to say, look, I can do it. I mean, it's going to be really hard for me to win, but I'm going to try to do it in my own in my own community and give back to the community that, that helped me get where I where I got. So I'm I'm open to anything. But right now I'm I'm really interested in drawing young people into public service, into politics, um, using my own story of ups and downs, um, you know, to, to open up you know, public life in a, in a way that's accessible and relatable rather than, you know, just sort of saying, here are the principles we should have or, you know, here are the policies we should pursue, but, but rather here's one person's story about how it kind of came together for me and here's why there's room for you and, and why, even if it doesn't work immediately, if you just dust yourself off and, and keep trying, you'll make your, your difference. Well, on that uh, optimistic note, uh, we just wanted to thank you so much again for, for your time and for sitting down with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.